0: Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Monday, October 18th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today... How the push to search for signs of life on exoplanets fueled the developments of the technology we use in our latest generation of smartphones. Plus, what your punctuation habits can say about you as a writer, and a new website based on a 2016 art project that allows you to visually analyze those findings. And, finally, walruses from space. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So I talk a lot about space on this show because, I don't know, it's freaking cool and because there's always a ton of stuff happening across all the international space agencies and because, you know, thinking about space, to me, is one of the quickest ways to experience that elusive sense of awe which I've talked about on the show as being a very healthy experience for us humans. You know, engaging with activities and thoughts that help us see the bigger picture and forget about our little stresses. So I think space is great for that. But I am not ignorant to the critiques of space exploration. It costs a ton of money. Money that could be used to cure diseases here on Earth, to make sure every human has access to food, clean water, housing, and healthcare, and to fight the climate emergency which, by the way, all of these rockets are contributing to in massive ways. Yet at the same time, there is a lot of really important research happening on almost every space mission. Currently, there is a particular focus on investigating how extreme climate events might affect various species, so, you know, very relevant. But there have also been huge innovations over the years necessary for whatever the primary objective of a mission was that led to everyday technology that we use here on Earth. A brief and incomplete list of everyday items that were first developed for use by NASA. Memory foam, which started as seats for test pilots. Scratch-resistant sunglasses. Astronaut helmet visors. The dust buster. The battery-powered technology in it was created by Black & Decker for NASA as part of a partnership creating tools for moon exploration. Also, odor-eliminating shoe inserts. Spacecraft filters. Home-use water filtration systems, originally designed to purify water for Apollo astronauts. And it goes on and on. NASA has an entire website called NASA Spinoffs, and at least used to produce an annual report of NASA technologies that have evolved into commercial products, and they've counted over 2,000 since 1976. In 2018, they even built a whole interactive website called NASA Home and City, where you could explore around a virtual town and see all the products that have been created with NASA technology. But I don't know if it runs on JavaScript or what, but I could not get it to work in any browser. I'll drop the link in the show notes, though, just in case you want to give it a try. But Christopher Mims, writing in the Wall Street Journal, points out that it goes even further today. So the James Webb Space Telescope, the most powerful telescope to ever go into space, is launching in December and will orbit the sun and give us, among many other things, the ability to study exoplanets, planets outside of our solar system, in unprecedented detail, including seeing if there are any signs of life on those exoplanets. And part of the technology behind this $10 billion telescope that has been in the works for three decades was eventually repurposed for the displays on the most recent generation of smartphones. But as Mims points out, this time, it's not just the technology being used. The optics required for those displays are made in the very same factory where parts of the Webb telescope were manufactured as well. So, by optics, we're talking about huge, ultra-high-precision mirrors and lenses. And the displays in question are OLED displays. Even if you're not a tech person, you've probably seen the term OLED popping up more and more recently. It stands for Organic Light Emitting Diode. And it's what's used in a lot of the latest smartphones, TVs, and computer monitors. Quoting Mims in the Wall Street Journal... Such optics weren't possible until NASA asked a handful of companies more than 20 years ago to bid on the rights to figure out a way. The result, developed by a company called Tinsley Integrated Optical Systems, was a technique that enabled production of very large mirror surfaces that are so nearly flawless that any imperfections on their surface are only a few atoms thick. And that technology can also be involved in producing many displays, using lasers to transform extra-large sheets of silicon deposited on glass, significantly reducing the costs of electronic components for some displays. The Webb Telescope's primary mirror, which collects the interstellar snapshots, is made up of 18 hexagonal sections, each 1.32 meters in diameter, that will fold origami-style for flight, then unfold in space to make a surface 6.5 meters across, or more than 21 feet. All the gold-plated beryllium mirror sections must be so unblemished that they can collectively focus even the faintest whisper of the most distant celestial body into a detectable image. So, around the time that Tinsley had finished making those enormous primary mirror sections, the laser systems company that Tinsley is a subsidiary of, Coherent, was investigating ways to make larger lenses for their machines that prepare silicon for use in flat panel displays. So they spoke to their partners at Tinsley and were able to start manufacturing similarly enormous lenses. Quoting again, These new lenses for display manufacture were up to 1.85 meters across, more than twice as wide as those used previously. And this is important because in the fabrication of displays, as in the fabrication of microchips, the bigger the sheet of near-perfect silicon a company can use, the more displays, or microchips, it can etch onto and then cut out of that sheet. This means significantly more efficiency and lower cost. One challenge for both processes is that the optics that direct the lasers that accomplish key steps must be nearly perfect, and the bigger those lenses, the harder it is to eliminate imperfections. Coherent was already making lenses for its own line-beam systems, industrial objects as big as school buses that shoot lasers at sheets of silicon deposited on panes of glass, an early step in the manufacture of mini-displays. But doubling the size of its optics wouldn't have happened at that point in history without NASA funding Tinsley's innovations in manufacturing that the space telescope's unprecedented mirrors required, says Dr. Brandon Turk, a vice president of Tinsley. End quote. And where does it go from here? I mean, it's NASA, so not even the sky is the limit. But Mims pointed to one cool example. The superconducting tape that's needed to make future fusion reactors will need kilometers worth of these optics for each magnet used in each reactor. But more interesting to me is that for fusion reactors to ever actually take off you know, after the technology actually works, they have to be economically viable, which means that all the tech to make these big optics might over time in the future, but become even more common and affordable as well, at which point, who knows where else it could be applied. The development of technology is wild. And could some of these innovations have happened even if we weren't pouring billions upon billions of dollars into blasting people and things into space? Yeah, maybe, in some ways. And yeah, maybe we'd have some other things that are just as cool or invaluable that we can't even conceive of right now. But in terms of what we do have, and the contributions space research is making to the rest of the world, it's pretty undeniably awesome. I mean, so much of what we're talking about in this segment, and even the technology for me to be researching this and recording it and you listening to it, goes back to the space program, and in many ways, the Apollo Guidance Computer. Quoting once more from MIMS, The Apollo Guidance Computer was the first digital general-purpose multitasking interactive portable computer, which was present on both the Apollo Command Module and the Lunar Lander. In its use of then-novel components like some of the world's first silicon microchips, aka integrated circuits, it paved the way for our modern world, from the internet to the innards of the same smartphones whose displays are in part due to the James Webb Space Telescope." End quote. So earlier last month, you might have seen a post going around that showed what some classic works of literature look like with all of their text removed, just leaving the punctuation. It's a pretty cool design visual and gives you a quick sense of the kind of writers that various authors are. You know, are they a big fan of parentheticals? Is the M-dash their favorite? Do they ask a lot of rhetorical questions, like apparently I do? The images that resurfaced last month actually originate from a 2016 project by adam j calhoun who was in turn inspired by a series of posters by nicholas rougeau the poster series stripped some public domain works of their text and then rearranged all of the remaining punctuation in a spiral around a small pen and ink icon representative of the story they look really cool but it's a little tough to get the same sense of the writer's style from them because of the big spiral So Calhoun wrote some Python code to showcase samples from novels in the same linear format that we'd read them in a book, and the effect looks a bit like Morse code or Braille, well, depending on the author. Calhoun wrote in 2016, quote, "'When we think of novels, of newspapers and blogs, we think of words. We easily forget the little suggestions pushed in between—the punctuation. But how can we be so cruel to such a fundamental part of writing?' Inspired by a series of posters, I wondered, what did my favorite books look like without words? Can you tell them apart, or are they all a mush? In fact, they can be quite distinct. Take my all-time favorite book, Absalom, Absalom, by William Faulkner. It is dense prose stuffed with parentheticals. When placed next to a novel with more simplified prose, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, it is a stark difference. Yes, the contrast is stark, but the wild mix of symbols can be beautiful, too. This Morse code is both meaningless and yet so meaningful. We can look and say, brief sentence, description, shorter description, action, 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 end quote. Calhoun also displayed excerpts from A Farewell to Arms, Frankenstein, Ulysses, Pride and Prejudice, and others. And he even made some bar graphs indicating the frequency of use of all the punctuation marks for each book, which does a cool job of showing how style changed over time and between authors. For example, A Farewell to Arms has almost no commas, a big break from the past, Calhoun says, which you can see in the huge amount of commas in Huckleberry Finn, Great Expectations, and Pride and Prejudice. Calhoun even made heat maps of the punctuation in each book he chose. Pretty cool stuff. But now Clive Thompson, who is responsible for this whole thing popping back up again earlier this fall, created his own web tool that allows you to do the same with any piece of writing, called Just the Punctuation. Thompson recommends inputting 6,000 to 8,000 words and then you get a nice image that is designed to look just like Calhoun's beige designs. And out of curiosity, I put in the script of last week's show compared to an excerpt from my book. I guess I should have anticipated that the podcast script would contain a lot of quotation marks, but whoa, buddy, do I use a lot of commas no matter what I'm writing. There were tons in both the podcast script and the book excerpt. I mean, I guess that makes sense with my run-on sentence habit. There were also several instances in my book where there's a whole string of punctuation marks inside of parentheses i don't even know how that got there i don't remember what that is and thompson apparently realized the same practice in his own writing but anyways it's really fascinating to explore if you also have different outlets that you write for you know how do they differ between your styles you could even analyze how your punctuation compares in emails at work versus messages to friends or just put in the writing of some of your favorite writers or favorite books The best is ones that have multiple narrators or distinct chunks, like how Frankenstein begins with a letter, and you can visually see the pattern when it goes from a letter to an active scene with dialogue, indicated by the arrival of quotation marks. Thompson says that he's still working on a way for you to easily save the images and share them, but for now encourages you to just screenshot them. And he also notes that it is all completely private. Nothing is saved or transmitted anywhere. It's all done inside your browser. So just dash the dash punctuation.glitch.me appropriately has lots of punctuation in the URL itself. Very fun way to kill some time. Link in the show notes. I love a good citizen scientist project, so here's another one for you. The World Wildlife Fund and the British Antarctic Survey are looking for walrus detectives, their words. They have launched a new Walrus from Space project, which I really need to be made up into a, like, 1940s-style sci-fi film poster, Walrus from Space. Anyways, they are asking people to help them identify walruses from satellite imagery so that they can track the Atlantic and Loptev walrus populations over a period of five years and analyze how much the climate emergency is affecting their numbers. Quoting NPR, Satellites will routinely capture photos across Russia, Greenland, Norway, and Canada over five years, and those photos will then be made available to walrus detectives, who can use their computer to search the high-resolution pics for walruses. The public's detective work will be aiding researchers as well as Arctic indigenous communities and other locals who are working toward the same goal, the WWF said. All it takes to be a walrus detective is to watch a tutorial online and then take a test that gauges your walrus-identifying prowess. And kids as young as 10 years old can sign up to help with adult supervision, the WWF said. The organization hopes that half a million people will join the Walrus from Space effort, end quote. Hannah Cubane's research associate at the British Antarctic Survey said in a statement, quote, Assessing walrus populations by traditional methods is very difficult as they live in extremely remote areas. Satellite images can solve the problem as they can survey huge tracts of coastline. However, doing that for all the Atlantic and Laptev walrus will take huge amounts of imagery, too much for a single scientist or small team. So we need help from thousands of citizen scientists to help us learn more about this iconic animal," end quote. And from the Washington Post, quote, "'Walruses are feeling the effects of climate change,' the WWF warned, with their Arctic habitat and polar region warming almost three times faster than the rest of the world. The hunkering mammals rely on sea ice to rest, breed, and feed, but it is fast melting. Roughly 13% of summer sea ice is disappearing per decade, according to the WWF. If the ice disappears, the animals could be forced to rest on land instead, which means they would need to swim farther and expend more energy to reach their food. The hefty animals need their thick, fat layer to stay alive amid freezing temperatures, with both the male and females having large tusks for fighting, defense against predators, such as polar bears, and to haul themselves into the water. In addition to melting ice, climate change is also causing the Arctic Ocean to become more acidic, as it absorbs carbon dioxide, the WWF said, making it harder for animals that walruses feed off, such as clams, sea snails, and crabs, to thrive, end quote. But you can help. The more we know about walruses and their numbers, the better scientists can figure out how to assist and advocate for them. So if you are interested in spotting some walruses from space, check out the link in the show notes and get counting. So the big Apple event is happening today, or has happened by the time you hear this. It's ongoing as I'm recording, so no updates from me. But if you want the full lowdown, make sure you're following the Tech Meme Ride Home, where host Brian McCullough will have you covered with everything you need to know. If not later today, then I'm sure in full tomorrow. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.